there's a lot here. So bear with me. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 21. This is what the scripture says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise." making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own to figure out uh, what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would convict and comfort us. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a lot here. We could spend a long time uh, going through this passage. If you'll remember where we've been looking at the letter to the Ephesians, we are now in the section of the letter where Paul is telling God's people what it means for them to live in this beloved community that God has called out of sin and death and formed and shaped in the person and work of his son, Jesus. And so today he is talking about what it means for us to walk in Christ. And there is just a long list there. I mean, I just read it, you heard it. Uh, but three times in this passage, Paul says to walk in a particular way. He says to walk in love to walk as children of light, and to walk as the wise walk. 
And so we're going to use those three kind of subheadings just to organize our thoughts today. We're going to follow Paul's outline for this section, and we're not going to hit everything in exhaustive detail, but we will hit some things uh, in different levels of detail. So stick with me. Buckle up. There's a lot coming. Walk in love, Paul starts by saying. We see it in verse Two, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, what does it mean for us to walk in love? I think it sort of has a dual meaning. The dual meaning is that we are to walk as those who are loved by God, but we are also to walk as those who love God. And in fact, I think we see both of those things at work in that list he gives us in verse 3. And then again in verse 5, where he says that there shouldn't be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness among God's people. For those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom. I think we see both that we are to walk as those who are loved by God and that we are to walk as those who love God. So we're going to think for a moment first about sexual immorality and impurity. Uh, And parents, if you are anxious right now, uh, nothing here will be particularly graphic. We'll keep it high level, uh, just so you are not worried if you should sprint for the doors uh, at the moment. When we think about sexual immorality, the Greek word uh, that is translated sexual immorality is porneia, uh, which is where we get our word, for instance, pornography. And it has to do with anything that is outside of God's design for human sexuality. And which means any sexual practice that is outside the one flesh union of husband and wife is included within this definition of sexual immorality or impurity. And I think as we see Paul talking about sexual immorality and impurity, he is calling us to live as those who have been loved by God. And here's what I mean. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, he says, we must flee sexual immorality. We must run away from it. We don't want to get as close to it as we can and then draw a line. We want to go the opposite direction. And then he says, because every other sin you commit is outside the body. But sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Paul is basically saying there, and I believe here, that we must walk as those who are beloved by God. We have worth and dignity and value because we are made in the image of a holy God, and we are loved by that God, and we must walk as those who are loved by him. We must walk in our bodies as those who are made in his image and loved. And when Paul says uh, that there must not be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity among us, he is saying there that there must not be an ongoing practice of those things by those who are in Christ. He is not saying that those who have a history of such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to just go a little deeper on this for just a moment. 
Because I grew up in the church. And when I grew up in the church, I grew up going to youth group. And it felt like at youth group, this was like the only sin we talked about. Uh, sexual immorality was like the only thing our parents were worried to prevent. They hired a staff person just to talk to us about this and make sure it didn't happen, uh, is what it feels like in retrospect. And here's what happened, though. Instead of talking to us about how we were made in God's image, that our bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit, and that we are beloved by God and have worth and dignity and value, and therefore we should walk as those who are in the light, instead what they did is they told us that purity and holiness was a zero-sum game. And by that I mean they told us that if we messed up, we were impure. We were damaged goods. And this became this sort of weird focus on virginity in our youth group and in the youth groups around me uh, where I grew up. And so there were these campaigns that were coming out at that time. Maybe you've heard of them or remember them. True Love Waits was probably the most successful one where they had teenagers pledge to remain, you know, abstinent until they were married on these cards. And then they went and allegedly they were going to go hang them across the Golden Gate Bridge because that would be a thing uh, that would mean something. I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know what happened to the cards. Friends, it was profoundly unhelpful. And it was not profoundly unhelpful in that it was discouraging us from behavior that would have been sinful. It was profoundly unhelpful because it taught us implicitly and at times explicitly that if we sinned in this area, we were damaged goods. And friends, if you are damaged goods, if you are forever unclean, if you are forever impure because you have sinned in this way, what is the point of pursuing obedience? There's none. You mess up once, you're done for life. At its best, it was ill-conceived. At its worst, it was spiritually abusive to those that went through those kinds of campaigns. I read a book a few years ago uh, with a kind of funny title. You're probably going to laugh when you hear it. Uh, it was actually a serious book. The book was called Making Chastity Sexy. And it was a study of the rhetoric of evangelical abstinence campaigns. Uh, and what they found was that when they looked at the American versions of these campaigns, um, they were largely, uh, largely couched as telling teenagers, hey, you can choose to be abstinent. And not only would they say you can choose to be abstinent, but by doing so, you are avoiding all of these potentially negative consequences. Um, and you are uh, assured that when you one day get married, everything is going to be amazing. And like they followed these kids and went through these programs. And what they found is they're getting divorced in record numbers because none of that was true. Like things were hard when they got married. And, and they, they, they were saying by saying like choice is your thing that's like guiding this like it doesn't actually anchor them in anything at the same time there were campaigns that were similar happening in sub-saharan africa where aids was endemic and what they found was instead of couching things as avoid the negative consequence of of, of pregnancy or or aids which would have been a very logical thing to say 
In sub-Saharan Africa, the way the church was talking about sexual immorality was saying, your body is a temple. You are beloved by God. You are made with worth and dignity and value. Walk in the light. And what they found was that was so much more effective because it anchored kids in something other than the fear of guilt or shame. Friends, to have a history of sexual immorality or impurity does not define you in Christ. Paul says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to this. I I don't normally read such long uh, sections, but this is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Very similar to what he says here in Ephesians 5. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That sin does not define God's people in Christ. Such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Christ. Holiness and purity is not a zero-sum game. So we're still talking about what it means to walk in love. I think sexual immorality shows us that we are called to walk as those who are beloved by God. And that empowers us actually to to walk that way. But walking in love also means loving, uh, walking as those who love God. And to love God means we love the things that God loves. This happens all the time in relationships. You know this. You come to love the things that those you love Love. I don't particularly care for country music. I'm sorry. If that was shocking, I heard a gasp. (laughs) Jen really likes country music. I have come to appreciate (laughs) some country music. The stuff that's not about trucks and dogs and... Anyway. We love the things that those we love love. What does God love? We know that God loves his people. We know that God loves his world, his creation. We know that God loves righteousness and justice and holiness. And so in verses 3 and 5, when Paul warns us against covetousness, which is not just a sin, but he says is actually idolatry, it is pointing us away from love for God towards love of something else. Covetousness is discontent. It is disordered longing. It's about failing to love God. And here's what's crazy. My youth group never talked about covetousness. We talked a ton about sexual immorality. But not once did we talk about covetousness or greed or love of money. And friends, at my most cynical, I want to say, I think that's because covetousness honestly looks like success in our culture. 
Covetous, we would love, many of us would love for our kids to grow up and be covetous and be able to take care of us in our old age. Covetousness is in the air we breathe in this society. There's an E-Trade commercial a few years ago uh, that had uh, sort of a video of people at a pool party, and then it had this voiceover. This is for E-Trade, online stock trading. The neighbors are pretty cool. They remember everyone's names, throw sweet barbecues on sunny days, and the kids love going over there to swim in the pool. Forgot swimming trunks? They have a pair they can loan you. They've got a section in their stock portfolio just for pool stuff. Everyone likes them. You like them. But you'd like them better if you made more money than they did. Wow. <laughs> Pretty honest. Truth in advertising. That's covetousness. You'd like them better if you made more money than they did. There was a study that was reported on in the Atlantic Magazine a few years ago that said over 40 years, average home sizes have doubled in the United States. And yet, people's satisfaction with their homes has remained flat. However, they found within that data that people were generally more satisfied with larger homes. However, their satisfaction turned to dissatisfaction if larger homes were built nearby. So people like their house, but if a bigger house goes up down the street, suddenly they are dissatisfied with the things that they have. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's idolatry because it is dissatisfaction with the provision of God for us. That's why it's idolatry. It is looking for satisfaction and security and comfort in something else other than God and what he has given us in his grace and his goodness. We are called to turn away from that. We are called to walk in love. Uh, I won't go through the rest of the list that we have in that section, but Paul also, well, I will, I'll go like super fast through it just because we are going slow today, and I apologize for that. In verse 4, he says, No filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Instead, our mouths should be overflowing in thanksgiving. And again, Paul is reminding us here of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 15. What comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart, and that is what defiles a person. And so what, what Paul is saying here is the gospel should shape, should shape the way we speak. The gospel should shape what we find funny. And at the end of this section, in verses 6 and 7, he's saying don't partner with people that downplay or minimize the seriousness of this kind of sin. Because you too will begin to do that. You are no longer part of the sons of disobedience. You have been called out of that into something else. So the first way to walk is we are called to walk in love and do not fear. That was by far the longest point uh, that is in the sermon. Second point, we are called to walk as children of light. We see it in verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
To walk as children of light means that we love and pursue what is good and what is right and what is true. More than that, we are called as God's people in verse 11 to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. When Paul calls those works unfruitful, part of what he means is that there is no flourishing. There is no goodness. There is no happiness to be found in works of darkness. God's people are called to expose the works of darkness, which means at a very basic level, we are called as God's people to call evil things evil. We are called to identify evil things as evil, no matter who does it, no matter where they do it, or no matter what they've done. Evil must be called evil. Friends, the church in America is in something of a reckoning right now. In the sense that so often the church has covered up and hidden abuse within its own ranks. Abuse of all kinds. And friends, the New Testament tells us unequivocally in 1 Peter 4 that judgment begins with the household of God. Judgment begins with us. We are God's people. We are called to walk as children of light, which means we must call evil things evil, especially when those things are done within the church. So often we cover things up and we see churches cover up difficult behavior by leaders because there's this sense that the church is too big to fail or this leader is too important to fall. And friends, that is false. The only indispensable person in the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not need us to pretend that evil is good to maintain the illusion of righteousness on the behalf of a leader who has fallen. Abuse must be called abuse. The Westminster Larger Catechism in its explanation of the Ninth Commandment says that the Ninth Commandment forbids undue silence in a just cause. If we see evil especially evil within the church, and we remain silent. We are sinning against God. We are called as God's people to expose the deeds of darkness, to call evil things evil. And friends, I know that there are some of you here that have been hurt by the church, maybe even abused by those in the church. And perhaps the church or even your family didn't respond in a way that would have been helpful when you went to them. And if that is the case, I'm sorry. But know that the Lord Jesus knows what has happened to you. He knows what has been done to you. And he is even more angry about it than you are. And he will bring justice one day when injustice will exist no longer. We must call evil things evil. Paul continues in that section to note that we must walk in the light. 
We don't just expose the deeds of darkness. We are called to walk in light. Because, friends, sunshine is ultimately the best disinfectant we have. We are called to be people that don't live in hiding, that don't live in shame, that don't live in isolation. Rather, there is congruence and consistency between what we do and say and how we act in public and what we do and say and how we act in private. We are called to walk in the light, not to hide in the darkness. So that's our second point. We are called to walk as children of light. Here's our third and our final point for this morning. We are called to walk as the wise. We see it in verse 16, uh, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then Paul says, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. I think Paul's uh, phrase there, making the best use of the time, is really instructive for us. Uh, I took an economics class in undergrad, and I remember next to nothing about it, uh, except for uh, one phrase, one concept, and Kevin Horn, if I'm wrong about this, you just rebuke me from the congregation. <laughs> the phrase was, opportunity cost. <laughs> we'll take it. Opportunity cost means that when you're doing one thing, you can't be doing another. Uh, if I want to go on vacation to Hawaii, I can't also be on vacation in the Bahamas. Uh, I am a human being. I can be in one place at one time. To do one thing means I can't do another. And I think what Paul is calling us to do, and you see it throughout this passage, is when he says make the best use of the time, realize that when you are doing something sinful, you are not also able to do something righteous at the same time. And so throughout this passage, when he says things like, don't let there be filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, but instead let there be thanksgiving, he's saying recognize that when you're talking with your mouth and what is coming out is filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, you are not also giving thanksgiving at that moment. Instead, make the best use of the time. Let thanksgiving be what comes out of your mouth instead of these other things. And friends, that goes for us throughout our entire lives as we think about sin. Anytime we are sinning, we are not also living in righteousness. And Paul is saying we should walk in righteousness. Understand that sin robbed you of an opportunity to obey the Heavenly Father that loves you and gave His Son to ransom you from sin and death. Make the best use of the time. And he says we should make the best use of the time in verse 16, because the days are evil. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. The days were evil 2,000 years ago. The days are evil today. There is no golden age of the church that we are trying to get back to. We must learn what it means to walk in faithfulness now. We must walk in obedience now, for the days are evil, so make the best use of the time. And the way we do that, he says in verse 17, is to understand what the will of the Lord is. And friends, he gave you a book to tell you what his will is. And it's summarized in so many different places what he wants from us. 
He wants us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He wants us to uh, do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. That is what God wants from us. And that is what guards us from failing to make the best use of our time, is knowing and delighting in what God wants. And then even this section ends in verses 18 and 20, and Paul says, so that instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Which I think means be filled not only with the Holy Spirit, but to understand the Scriptures and to be living in celebration of the Gospel. And when we do this, we rejoice in Christ, giving thanksgiving to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, friends, if the days are evil, if we live in a culture that is full of hardship for us, that is opposed in some ways to the gospel, what Paul is telling us here is that instead of medicating ourselves against the difficulties of this life, being filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, we are called instead to live in light of what is most true, which is that Christ has overcome sin and death and hell. And friends, this is helpful for us because it reminds us that the gospel is not here to help us deal or cope with or escape from reality. The gospel answers the truth of reality. The gospel says this world is broken, and it's broken because of sin and death, which is not just something out there, but it's something in here. And because of that, God sent his own son to live a life you couldn't live and to die a death you couldn't die and to rise again in triumph over sin and death. And he is coming back to rip evil out of this world by its roots. The gospel confronts reality. It answers Reality. We don't need to medicate or numb ourselves or escape from reality. And friends, this is where we end. There's a lot here. I looked at this passage for three days with no idea of how to outline it, of how to get it down to a manageable size, so we just walked through it. But friends, the, the very nub of all of this, we must recognize God takes sin and God takes holiness seriously. God takes sin and God takes holiness seriously. And how we walk as those who proclaim the name of Jesus matters. It absolutely matters. And so if you see yourself in any of these sins, this passage is an invitation for you to repent. This passage is an invitation for you to turn away from what is evil, to turn away from what is in the darkness, and to turn towards your Heavenly Father in faith because of what Christ has done and to strive to walk in new obedience. But if we do all of that and also forget where this passage started, we have missed something Profound. Look at verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, what Paul is saying there is we begin beloved and adopted. We begin accepted and forgiven because of what Christ has done. The fragrant offering means that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God, which means our sin no longer defines us. So this passage is not telling us about how to get into the church, about how to get into the kingdom, or about how to stay in the kingdom. This passage is telling us what it means to walk in the kingdom. It is telling us that we are responding to God's grace for us in Christ. We're not earning anything here. God has done everything. And now he invites us as beloved children with whom he is delighted and well-pleased to walk in holiness. And when we do that, we bear witness to what kind of God he is. Friends, grace changes everything about our motivation in the Christian life. And this reminds us that the gospel doesn't free us from holiness. It frees us to holiness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us difficult words. Words that cut, words that convict, words that unmask, words that shine a light into darkness we might not want to look into. But Father, you wound us that you might heal us. You invite us to walk in holiness, not because we earn something from you when we do that, or we stay in your good graces when we do that, but because you have lavished your grace upon us. Lord, you started this relationship and we can't break it. And so, Father, be at work in us. Shape us. Help us to walk in love. Help us to walk as children of light. Help us to walk as the wise. That we might bear witness to your character and your goodness in the world. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in what Christ has done for us and to strengthen us to walk as befits your children. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.